Okay. If I could get your attention, just a reminder, I'm sure you already have it down, you already remember, but this is our last lesson in this series, and uh, I'm sure going to miss you all for, <laughs> for over the summer, but uh, we'll be taking up a near, another, we're planning another series for next September, I don't know the exact date, and I don't know what we're going to study, but uh, it'll be something biblical. And it'll be after Labor Day. But this is our uh, eighth and final in this series. And so if you come next week, there'll probably be somebody in here you could uh, have lunch with. I don't know, but uh, we, won't, we won't be here. And we've been studying the book of Acts. And the last three lessons is the third in the series on Paul's missionary journey. So Paul took three main missionary journeys that are recorded in the book of Acts, and today the, the central point, the emphasis is on the town of Ephesus there in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and we see a great story in Acts chapter 19 about a, uh, a guy that we're going to call Mongo, and Mongo is named after the guy in this movie clip. I know it. Uh, that, that clip was rather short because that's the only part of that whole movie that's clean enough to show. <laughs> Bill asked me back there, this isn't going to be the campfire scene, is it? <laughs> uh, all right, if you'll turn uh, to Acts 19, Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, and primarily spent three years in the town of Ephesus. And uh, Ephesus, you probably know the, the name barely because you're aware of the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. It's one of the books in the New Testament, Ephesians. Well, it's called that, obviously, because it's written to the church at Ephesus. The church there is actually the church that Paul planted in today's lesson. And I think it's particularly interesting. Let me read uh, from Paul's le letter uh, to, to the church at Ephesus. This is after Paul completed his missionary journey. And uh, you can read this in Acts 28. But he gets arrested and he's in prison in Rome. And he writes a letter to the church at Ephesus that we call Ephesians. And in the conclusion of the letter, listen to what he says, Ephesians 6, 12 through 17. Now, our struggle, our struggle in life is not against flesh and blood. It, you think it is, it seems like it is, but the fact is it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth of the gospel, and you put on the breastplate of righteousness that you give from God, and having 
shod your feet. Notice he's using all the imagery of a Roman soldier uh, for all these things that God has given us to stand up against the, the spiritual forces of wickedness that he called, the spiritual warfare, in other words. So he shod your feet with the gospel of peace that was preached to you in addition to all taking up the shield of faith that you have in believing in the Lord and, and in the gospel uh, that you may be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles. So life is going to throw a lot of flaming missiles at you. And you need that faith, you need that truth of the gospel to overcome it. And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So that's kind of the conclusion of it. The power of God will, will enable you to overcome these spiritual forces of wickedness. And why would he write this particular letter? This is the key passage in the New Testament about spiritual warfare. Why would he write the key passage to the church at Ephesus? Well, I think you'll see in today's lesson, Ephesus was the center for the occult in the Roman Empire. It was an international port city. Think of San Francisco or New Orleans. That's, that was Ephesus, you know. It's kind of an international city where anything goes, wild and woolly, uh, just evil with a capital E, right? That's Ephesus. And it, it was also the center of the world-famous Temple of Artemis, which was called one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. It was huge. And in fact, uh, British archaeologists found the ruins of it in 1869. And they uncovered it, you know, slowly the archaeologists did, and they just kept going. The foundation was so massive, and it ended up, the foundation of this temple was 450 feet long. Think of that. That's a football field and a half. That is a big building. And it was 239 feet wide, and they estimate that it stood 60 feet high because they found one of the marble pillars they believe there was about 127 of these marble pillars that were, that were built around it, and they were about 56 feet high. That's, that's a lot of marble <laughs> holding that thing up. And that, that temple of Artemis made it the, the center for the worship of the fertility goddess in their language, Artemis, or in the Greek, it was Diana. You've probably heard of Diana the fertility goddess. And because it was the goddess of fertility, guess what they guess how you worship the fertility goddess? Well, they they were prepared there for you to worship in that way with a thousand priestesses, actually over a thousand priestesses. It was the most famous, you really the house of prostitution. It was the most famous house of prostitution in the Roman world. And so you, the, the, the uh, brain is spinning and you're figuring out how you worship with these priestesses, right? And you're exactly right. I don't need to go there. So, I mean, man, there, it was a big attraction for many reasons. And people would come there from all over the Mediterranean world uh, to, just to see it. It was really a tourist attraction, and people would come there to worship. 
the, the Greek gods, the pantheon of gods, and partic particularly the fertility goddess. A huge business there in every, every area of the cult. Uh, you could go there and you had your horoscope done and, and uh, you had all these books that they sold there full of incantations and magic spells and you could go there and talk to psychics and mediums and spirits and the whole deal. It was a booming economy that was just centered and just revolved around uh, these spiritual forces of darkness, as Paul called them, the, the occult. And so a lot of money was being made. A lot of people were coming there, famous place. And Paul entered this haven of evil in Acts chapter 19 on his third missionary journey. And he preached the gospel there for three years with great effect. Planted a huge, thriving church, a series of churches really, uh, all over that area. So the fallen world, as Paul says, is in the grip of the adversary of God. Evil rules in, in the world then and also now. Nothing's changed. The spiritual forces of darkness have control over the world, the anti-God world. And what are the tools? And you see them there in Ephesus. Money, they had a booming economy. Everybody was making money out of this tourist business, out of the sale of idols and all these books and what have you. Uh, also entertainment, everybody's after that. And of course, sex, right? All marketing is around sex. And they had plenty of that there that was famous for that. So the question is, how could Paul change that? Where would the power come from to change that evil town and really the whole world? And we will see in today's lesson that the power of God's word is the only force that can change that, that can have an effect, that can uh, change what's going on in the world that's controlled by the adversary of God and overcome it. And so... Paul is going to actually accomplish that in, in uh, Ephesus. And it's an it's amazing story. And uh, so in his letter to the Romans, talking about the power of the gospel, in his letter to the Romans, Paul said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So where does righteousness come from? The power of God through his word as it is received and believed changes lives and righteousness comes to us who were before dead in our sins and a part of the evil world. So on his third missionary journey the bulk of his time was here in Ephesus the center for that this uh, key, it's a port city as I said uh, just like uh, New Orleans, a major, the major river in Turkey or major river in Asia Minor at that time was the Caister River, and it emptied right there in the Mediterranean, city, Mediterranean Sea, and the city was built around it. And we find in uh, today's lesson in Acts 19.10, uh, how effective was Paul? How powerful was the Word of God? It says, so that all who lived in Asia, that whole area, that whole country, whole territory, 
heard the word of the Lord. And of course, the indication is it changed everything. It heard the word of the Lord. Later on, somebody would see Paul coming and they would go, that's the guy that changed that whole world. That's the guy <laughs> that turned the world upside down. Of course, we know he actually it was already upside down. He turned it right side up. And, what was, and with what power? The word of God. The power of God's word was evident in the proclamation of, of Paul and the, when people believed their lives were changed. And in the early part of the formation of the church, as we'll see in today's lesson, God gave the apostles the ability to do miracles because you're in this tremendous period of transition, of planning the church, of changing everything from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Judaism to Christianity, right? And so uh, in this period of transition, for, for a short period of time, until the church was established and until the word of God, the New Testament was written, he gave them the power to do miracles. And it's uh, my understanding, and, and from studying it, that that, those, that power to do miracles ceased at the end of what we call the apostolic age. So when Paul and the other apostles were martyred and died out, uh, that gift of miracles, you might call it, ended. Now, I'm not saying there were no miracles. There are plenty of miracles. There's miracles today. We should pray for a miracle. But the, but the gift that they had, to do miracles at will as they went around to these places planting churches. I'm saying that ended, right? So that's, that's a big difference. Uh, and so we see in chapter 19, if you'll read along with me, when he first got there to Ephesus, he ran into these people that uh, had, they were probably Jewish, and they'd been in the land of Judea, when John the Baptist had his ministry and they had heard his preaching and believed what he was saying, uh, and so they're looking for the Messiah, and Paul introduces them. They're, they're prepared. I mean, they're prepped for it, but they just haven't heard about Jesus. And so we see this scene where, John run, where uh, Paul runs into these guys, and he said, so you were baptized? And they go, yeah, verse 3. And they said, well, what was it? It was John's baptism. John the Baptism. This, this, I think this is here to let us know that what's important is not just any faith, not just believing in something like John's baptism, but in the truth about Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That is what we believe, the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And that's what the message that God uses, belief in that, to save us. Right? So it's not just, you know, a lot of people say, well, oh yeah, well, I believe in God too. Or I have faith in this or that, or you know, not just faith in something or some generic God in the sky or something. It's the specific truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they hear that and believe that, then you see the Holy Spirit come upon them in, in today's lesson here in Acts 19. Uh, and so you see that, and uh, verse 7 tells us there was 12 of them. So it kind of becomes a core group Paul has there to get the work started. And he goes, as he always does in every city, to the local synagogue. 
And so they had a Jewish population there in verse 8. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. And so in the synagogues, the way they operated, if they had a visitor, especially if he, had a, if he was a named person, they would say, oh, you're, you were a Pharisee? You, you were educated by Gamaliel like Paul was, who's a famous rabbi? Would you get up and speak to us? That, that's what they, anybody like that would come and they would ask them to speak in the synagogue, you know, on the Sabbath. And so Paul said, perfect. And so for three months, they listened to him preach about Christ and then they finally figured out that that was going to change. Believing in Christ was going to take away their whole congregation. It was going to change everything they were doing. And so naturally, the core group there in the synagogue said, we can't have that, you know. Our power and our prestige and our money source will be dried up. So they opposed him after three months. And so Paul, uh, but when some were becoming hardened, verse 9, so when they started uh, rebelling and, and rejecting him and disobeying what he was saying, speaking evil of the way he was speaking of, Paul withdrew from them and took away his disciples that he had made there and fortunately, it doesn't tell us too much about it, but apparently there was a school, there was a, like a college or a junior college there, and typically, typically those schools, and also the people, didn't work too long in, in Ephesus. It was kind of like around noon they would have a siesta, right? And so Paul worked out a deal during that period of time to teach at this, at this college or this school of Tyrannus. And he did that for two years. They let him speak there. And people would come to hear him. And so verse 10 says, he taught there at Tyrannus for two years. We see in chapter 20, the end of chapter 20, that Paul was actually in Ephesus for three years. So he spoke at the synagogue for three months, and then two years at the school of Tyrannus, and then he was there for a few months after that before he moved on. And so... We're told there, again in verse 10, as I quoted before, he says, and this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia, that whole area, heard the word of the Lord, whether it was Jews or Greeks. Everybody heard the gospel in that whole area. So amazing work was being done uh, by Paul and all of his disciples. And in addition to that, verse 11, and, and kind of like helping him accomplish that, God was involved in verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And he gives you an example of why they were extraordinary. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. So naturally, being a center of the occult, and the fertility goddess, there was a lot of demonic activity there. And so this next story is going to be about that demonic activity because as we pointed out all through the books of Acts and his missionary journeys, what would happen as people were being converted, there would be opposition wherever he went. So you had simultaneously people believing, their lives changing, great things happening, but also opposition. And that's the way it's always been. You know, the world has a choice 
to believe in God or the adversary of God. Even if they don't know they're believing in the adversary of God, if they don't believe in Christ, Christ said, whoever is not for me is against me. There's no fence sitters. There's no people in between. If you're not for Christ, whether you know it or not, you're on the side of the adversary of God and you're involved in all the stuff that's going on in the world. That's the way it is. And so we see this great story. I love it. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's all about Mongo. This is the original Mongo. was in Ephesus. And see, y'all are the only ones who know that because everybody else reads this and they, they don't know this guy's name, but we do. And so in verse 13, it really is a great story. It says, also some of the Jewish exorcists, so being the center of the occult, there were some Jews there that would go around and claim, you know, to be able to speak to the demons and to get tell your future and, and do exorcisms and all this kind of stuff for a price. It's all about the money, right? <laughs> and so that's what they were up to. And they saw Paul doing exorcisms and they went, wait a minute. We've been using all these incantations and magic spells, you know, but this looks like the real deal. So we're going to repeat what Paul said and use his name to do these exorcisms, you know. To, maybe we can get a, a bigger fee. Maybe something will actually happen. Our stuff has been, you know, sleight of hand and tricks and all that, but maybe we can do the real deal. And so you have this great story. Um, these Jewish exorcists, they went from place to place attempting to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. They were trying to use that, which they didn't own, which they didn't believe in really. And they would say, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches, you know, to do this or to come out or whatever they were trying to accomplish. And seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. That's, that's who was uh, involved in the act to accomplish this. So there were seven guys, and they were younger guys, very athletic. I'm, I just made that up. <laughs> I saw Jeff going, now what? That's our verse 15. And the evil spirit answered back. So they, they used this, and you know, by the power of Paul, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, to come out. And by the, to their surprise, the demon actually talks back to them. And what does he say? You know, what happens, you know, when people who are not Christ try to take it, who are not believers in Christ actually try to take advantage of that? It doesn't go well. It doesn't work out too well. The evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. So as we saw in all the gospel accounts, all the, the demons, I mean, they know who Jesus is. <laughs> they know this is the guy and that he has power over them. And so that's what this guy's saying. He says, I respect and recognize and fear Jesus and even Paul who preaches Jesus and has the power of Christ in him. But we don't know you. <laughs> yeah. We, we don't have to do anything you say. 
And so, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued them, all seven of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. <laughs> I just got all these images of those seven guys fighting against this guy, and he's bouncing them off the wall. Probably got them trapped behind that piano like Mongo did. <laughs> and he's turning them upside down and pounding them on the floor and everything. And amazingly, it says he actually ripped all their clothes off. I mean, what a scene would that be, you know? I mean, I just, I just can't get over that. I'm thinking, you know, they were in this for the money, so they probably advertised and got people to come watch this. And so there's probably a pretty big crowd there watching uh, them just get the snot beat out of them. <laughs> and they come running out of the house screaming, you know. Their teeth are probably knocked out. They're, they're all beat up and black eyes and everything. Uh, and I say that because afterwards they actually became a witness for Christ. Because when the rest of the town, I mean, they became a testimony. Because when the rest of the town saw those guys and saw what had happened to them and saw them all beat up like that and heard the real story, they went, whoa, this Christ, is the, he's the real deal. And, it, and the fear of God was in them because of this. And it caused, uh, verse 17 says, this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, everybody who lived in Ephesus. And what was the result? What was their reaction? And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And so you see, as you, as really in every situation, every circumstance, whether it's good or bad, God uses for good, right? I mean, you would think this was a horrible thing, these seven sons doing all this stuff and abusing the name of Christ and this guy with a demon. Somehow, God used that for good, to bring about good. He literally changed a big part of the city, and you'll see the repentance of everybody that feared God because of it in this story. And so the fear fell upon all them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And look at the repentance here. Many also of those who had believed in Jesus, they kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. So again, being the center for the occult, these people all had, had all been involved in it one way or the other. They'd either been practicing in it, or it was part of their business, their livelihood, uh, whatever. And so they became confessing that they had been involved in this. A lot of these people uh, had probably already believed in Jesus, so now they're like really changing their life and their lifestyle because of it. God put the fear of God in them. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books. These are the books of the magic spells and the incantations and all that kind of stuff that, that were sold there in Ephesus, they brought those books together and began burning them. We, we give all that up. We're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to be involved in that anymore uh, in the sight of all. So that was their witness. We're turning away from that, and we're turning to Christ. And we're giving all this up. And to let you know the cost of that, I mean, this was, this was not cheap. 
them changing their lives and giving all that up. They counted up the price of all these books that were burnt. And they found it to be about 50,000 pieces of silver. And I looked that up, you know, how much would that have been in those days? Well, a day's labor would get about one piece of silver. And so this is a huge amount of money, a massive commitment for people to make. And it made me think, when I was thinking this, it made me think of Christ's teaching in Matthew 13 when he was talking about the value of the gospel, the value of the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, how valuable is it? And he told the parables. Uh, one was about a real estate developer. <laughs> Looking around, I know, I know who you are. <laughs> a real estate developer who found a piece of property that was so wonderful and so valuable that he gave up everything else for it. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And then the merchant who was buying and selling uh, gems and pearls, so you have the pearl of great price, he finds one pearl that is so wonderful and so valuable that he sells everything else he has to have that. That's the value of the kingdom of God. And these people discovered that. You know, what we have in Christ is the most valuable thing that a person could have. And if it means giving up all this other stuff, 50,000 pieces of silver, then so be it. Because what we have in Christ is so much more valuable than that. What's that? 50,000 Okay. <laughs> pieces of silver, same thing, I'm, I hope. So, verse 20, therefore, so the word of the Lord was growing. More and more people was growing mightily and prevailing. And so the power of God is prevailing over the spiritual forces of darkness. Again, what power on earth can overcome all the evil that's in the world? We spend a great deal of our time, you know, I had some lunch with some guys Saturday and we sat there for like an hour and a half talking about all the terrible things going on in the world and in this country and the political situation. It's just, we're going, how are we ever going to emerge from that? How are we ever, what are we going to do, you know, like that? And uh, as I was studying this lesson, it struck me, there's only one, one thing that you can do. There's only one power on earth that can overcome all this other garbage. It's the Word of God and the power of Christ in us. And that's what they discovered here. And so verse 21, now after these things, now the author, Luke, wants us to know that Paul had planned on leaving Ephesus after this three-year period. Uh, he saw, you know, my work here is, is almost done and the church is built up and I've got a lot of disciples continuing the work. So I'm, I'm going. Paul decided he was now going to move on, and he was going to go up across the Aegean Sea and back into Macedonia. Remember last week, we, the second missionary journey, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, all those churches that he planted up there in Macedonia and Greece. He's going to go back up through there, and he's already written them letters, and you can see this in the letter to, second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. 
I'm coming to you. He wrote that from Ephesus. I'm coming to you to get the collection that you promised. And so he was collecting money for the church in Jerusalem. Had fallen on hard times, and there was a famine there, and they desperately needed money and aid. And so Paul was collecting money from the churches, and he was then going to go to Jerusalem, deliver it, and then his plans were to go to Rome. And so we see that all in, in verse 21. He says, uh, I'm going to pass through, I'm going to go up to Macedonia and Achaia, that's Greece, saying, and after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he purposed to go to Jerusalem after he'd gone to Macedonia and Achaia, and then his plan was to go to Rome. And uh, that's really the, the rest of the book of Acts. That's, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's what happens if we don't have time to get there. After he leaves Ephesus, he goes back there and he does collect all the money in those churches in Macedonia and Greece, and then he goes to Jerusalem where he's arrested. Uh, because, again, the opposition, they've heard of all, the Jews have heard of all the things that, that Paul's been doing, and he's changing the world, and they say, now he's come back to Jerusalem, we've got to stop him. And so they cause a riot, and he's arrested. He spends two years in jail there in Caesarea, which is in that area of Palestine, about 50 miles from Jerusalem. And he spends two years in jail there, where he has a ministry to the governor, and then when he succeeded, to another governor, and then also to uh, Herod Agrippa, the great-grandson of the Herod the Great that we're familiar with. And so you think, golly, if Paul's such, doing such great work and such a great guy, why would God allow him to be in prison? Well, because God takes the evil that men do and uses it for good. Because he was in jail, he was able to witness to all these people there in the governor's mansion and the governors and all the people that worked for him for those two years in Caesarea. And then at the end of the book of Acts, he, he asked to go to Rome to have a trial in Rome, and so they take him to Rome. And on the way there, he's shipwrecked. I know that's a bad deal. How, I know no good can come from that. Guess what? They get washed up on the shore of Malta and Paul converts everybody on the island. The whole island, he, when he leaves Malta, the whole island is, is, is Christian. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. And so then he goes to Rome and he has, we know from the letter to the Philippians, that he tells them, how am I doing in Rome? He says, I'm witnessing to the whole Praetorian Guard. They were like special forces to the emperor. There was about 10,000 of them. And he had been in jail there in the, uh, near the palace. He had access to them. <laughs> and he was witnessing to all those guys. So again, this is what God does. He takes all the circumstances, most of which seem evil or bad or unfortunate, and you wonder, what is going on? What did I deserve this? And we find out at the end of the day that God somehow used it for good. And that's what the rest of the book of Acts is about. But now, going back to Acts 19, there were still some opposing forces there in Ephesus to Paul because at the end of that three years, uh, they realized that their economy was changing. It was suffering. The idol business was drying up. The tourist business was drying up. 
the prostitution business was drying up. This guy's costing us a lot of money. We got to do something about it. And you're probably thinking, you know, it's always all about the money. And that's what's going on. They start a riot because they have a fear of loss of this gold mine that they've had there in this tourist industry and selling idols and all the other stuff, the souvenirs and everything that's involved in it, the books and the magic and the uh, prostitution, the whole deal is changing and drying up. They've got to stop it. And so they start this riot here, and they arrest some of Paul's guys. And you see in verse 25, why are they doing this? How did they get it organized? They say, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And this guy is messing it up. All right, we had a license to steal, and he's taking it away. And so you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia Minor, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. So they, he's ruined our idol business. And so they stir up this mob, and, and uh, they take them, Paul's disciples, to this outdoor arena. And I've actually been in. Anybody else been there to Ephesus? Yeah. And so you've seen that arena. You, you probably sat in there. And I had the privilege, as everybody was, all the tourists and everybody was sitting all around there, they got me to go down in the middle of the deal and preach a sermon about this very lesson. I was down, standing down there in the middle of this arena with, with you know, several thousand people kind of mulling around, some of them sitting and everything. And uh, it was great, you know, so I'll never forget that. And that's, what, that's where they took him in verse 29. They dragged him to this theater, and they brought all these people in, and everybody was, was thinking this is some kind of patriotic rally or something. You know, what's going on here? And they're all yelling, great is Artemis, great is Ephesus, you know, all this. So they kind of made it out to be a patriotic rally, but it was really something against Paul and against his disciples and against the gospel. But when they finally uh, sorted it out, what was going on, you can see down in verse 35, the town clerk, one of the bureaucrats said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis? We already know this. And the image which fell down from heaven, you know, their, their belief. Since then, these, these disciples, these Christians, are un, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and stop doing anything that's rash. For you have brought these men, these Christians here, who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers. They haven't broken any law, really. You brought them in here and threatened them. So, I mean, you need to do this according to the law. Everybody settle down. No more riots. And if you need, you want to bring charges against these guys, fine. So anyway, that was the end of this deal here. And then Paul got up and left and went on his uh, journey up into Macedonia and Greece. And you see him uh, here in chapter 20. 
he went up to uh, all those churches in Acts chapter 20 that he had planted. He's in Philippi and Berea and uh, all the other churches. And he ends up in Corinth and collects all the money uh, there. Now, on his way back, he's on his way to Jerusalem. But, you know, when they sailed, they sailed along the coast. So if you look at a map, you can see that he would go right back by Ephesus. And he didn't want to get waylaid. He knew if he actually went to Ephesus, he might get stuck there. And so he said, I'm going to stop in a town outside there called Miletus. And he stopped there in Miletus, and he sent a messenger to bring the elders of Ephesus, the churches at Ephesus, up to meet him. Because he wanted to give them one last word because he thought he might not ever see them again. And I think that was right. And so we see a, uh, in Acts chapter 20, the rest of Acts 20, is four essentials that he was giving to the elders. This is what you need to do. And he used his own testimony. He said in verse 19, you need to have the attitude of a servant. So if, so if you want to be a leader in the church, he's saying verse 19, you need to have the attitude of a servant. You need to serve. You need to be humble in that way. Secondly, your obligation is to teach the word, the truth of the gospel, God's word. Thirdly, verse 21, uh, you need to be con committed to evangelism. In other words, have an outreach to the community here, to the unsaved. And fourthly, verse 23 and 24, you need to be ready to sacrifice, to have self-sacrifice. So he's saying, you know, I had to work hard, and then when I was off, I preached the gospel, and I gave up everything else, so self-sacrifice. And, of course, the result then being uh, verse 26 and 27. He said, because I have done this, Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Meaning, what did he mean by that? He's saying, I did everything I could. I told everybody that would listen about Christ. So if they're not saved, it's not because I didn't try. That, that's his point. And he's saying that should be your attitude as well, that everybody that's within your realm of influence, uh, you can at least say they heard the gospel. The, the uh, decision is theirs, but I presented it to them, and uh, I know it's not my fault if they haven't believed. All right, and then he gives them uh, one last warning, saying, you know, look, when I leave, it's just a matter of time before wolves, he calls them, <laughs> come in to the inside of the church, you know. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, right? They come in and they go, we're Christians and we're part of the church. But what do they do? They teach blasphemy. They teach another gospel <laughs> that's really not the, the gospel that they believe. And so Paul leaves there and goes on to Caesarea, which is the port city down there by Jerusalem, and uh, then he travels on over to Jerusalem, delivers the money, and there in Jerusalem he is arrested. And because they're afraid he's going to get killed, they take him to Caesarea. And uh, you can see this in Acts uh, 21. And he spends two years there in Caesarea uh, under arrest, waiting for a trial. And in those, they didn't have speedy trials in those days, obviously. 
<laughs> poor guy. But again, this is all part of God's plan. Because while he's there in that jail, he's witnessing to all these government authorities. It's just amazing what God did through this guy. Uh, whether he, he, he knew it or not, at the time, God was using him. And then in, uh, as we go on through, we see that after two years there in Caesarea, uh, he said, I'm a Roman citizen and I want a trial in Rome. So then they put him on a ship going to Rome, and he has a shipwreck, ends up on the island of Malta, it's converted, and then he finally, at the very end of the book of Acts, he ends up in Rome, awaiting his trial there in Rome, and that's how the book of Romans ends, okay? So, going back to where we started, how do you change the world? you know, the world that we worry about and talk about all the problems, how do you, in the end, how is the only power that overcomes that? I read a story about Mount St. Helens. Remember the huge volcano, Mount St. Helens, up there in Washington? How powerful it was? When it exploded, uh, it, let me see, it had had the power of 500 atomic bombs. That's power, right? The blast leveled all the trees up there on the whole mountain. He says a total of 3.2 billion board feet of lumber was destroyed. So that thing was powerful. But the fact is, when you're talking about power, when you're talking about a world full of lost souls, what could possibly change the world? Only the word of God could do it. The only power that could do that is the power of God in the gospel to save everyone who believe, as Paul said. So the question is, today, as we close and we close this series, uh, would you like to entrust your soul to that power today? Do you make that decision? Or maybe you've made that decision, but like the guys in Ephesus, there's stuff you need to give up Commit yourself completely. What do you need to give up to keep yourself serving only him and not the stuff in the world? Whatever it is, we know that God, his power can change the world, he can change our lives, and he's the only one that can do it. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word and these great stories of the power that's in the gospel, the power just in your, your simple truth of Christ on the cross. And I pray, Lord, that we would commit our lives to that and everything that gets in the way of that we would eliminate. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey. <laughs> Thank you.